what the media in general still is reluctant. There was just another study came out from Finland last week showing uh, prevention of dementia with nutrition. And the research is very strong there. We need more, you always need more, okay? Mm -hmm. But it's very strong and yet none of it gets into the general public. And yet the big to do this week about whether the FDA was going to approve the first ever drug for dementia. I don't even know how that turned out. I wasn't interested. I mean, forget the drugs. Just this is in our book, although dementia is not the major topic, it's really more mental health. Um, but we do touch on the dementia stuff or literature. But to us, it's an all an empowering message. It's saying, you can do something about your own health. You don't have to live in fear that, oh, dementia might fall out of the sky and affect me, or depression might fall out of the sky and affect me. You can do something for yourself. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Bonnie Kaplan onto our show today. Now, Dr. Kaplan is a research psychologist and a professor in the University of Calgary's Cummings School of Medicine. And for many years, she studied the role of nutrition and mental illness and brain development. Now into retirement, her passion is to teach people how our diet influences our brain and our mental health. She has written a book with Julia Rutledge called Better Brain, Overcome Anxiety, Combat Depression, and Reduce ADHD and Stress with Nutrition. This book is so important, more important now than ever before, as we are watching the rates of mental health conditions go up exponentially, especially with COVID among us, and especially with our lifestyle that is lacking in community and real connection and where our diets are getting worse and worse and worse with all of these chemicals and processed foods um, hitting the shelves at faster rates and where we have people that are struggling to realize their potential because they have all of these chronic illnesses like diabetes and heart disease and, and, um, uh, and high blood pressure and autoimmune disorders that are really clouding our ability to live fully. So doc, Dr. Bonnie Kaplan's book is a must read, a great read, easy to read, and you can start to implement everything in this book starting today. So this is a paradigm shifting approach in using food and nutrients for treating mental disorders like the anxiety, the depression, the ADHD, and they share their original groundbreaking research with readers everywhere for the first time. So we're going to be diving into this show. Please listen to it. Take notes, start to implement. Don't wait till next year or five years from now to implement what Dr. Bonnie Kaplan is teaching us today. Get started because the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. So if you get started today, your life can look fundamentally different in a week from now, in a month from now. And our bodies have the ability to change that quickly. So I urge you to put what you're about to learn today into practice. 
Now, before we dive into this show, I want to share with you that we are launching a new program that is new and improved. We have delivered this program many times before, have many graduates, and it is our nutrition and detox coaching program. But now we've added a three-month business startup component to this program. This program is amazing for nutritionists and healthcare workers and physicians and for people who want a career change in helping people actually reverse their chronic diseases. So I'm going to teach you 15 years worth of scientific knowledge and the how-tos, the art and science of reversing chronic disease so you can go out there and teach others how to do the same. So the first three months we focus on the science of reversing chronic disease using food as medicine and how to support the liver and support all the organs simultaneously. And then the second three months we focus on carving out your niche and then you dive into building your business so you can start getting your first clients or setting up the business of your dreams. So we're going to be launching that in January. Make sure you're on our mailing list at nicoletterichet.com or richerhealth.ca so that you're going to be getting the updates of when that program goes live so you can reserve your seat. So I look forward to working with you. Without further ado, here is Dr. Bonnie Kaplan. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and I'm so thrilled to have Bonnie Kaplan on our show because she is going to be taking us through how you can develop a better brain. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nicolette. I'm very excited to be here. Very excited to have you here because I always said if I had known what I know now 25 years ago, I would have gone into neuroscience because it is the field that is just the most intriguing and captivating to me. And you really have nailed an incredible you know, program and, and almost how to and the, and the knowledge behind how we really truly can better our brains and from the comfort of our own home right? It's, neuroscience might sound like a big concept and that you need all, to bring on all of these incredible experts to help you develop a better brain, but actually it really comes down to you and making decisions every day that'll help you achieve that. So I just want to thank you so much for all the research that you've done in this area, um, all the knowledge that you've acquired and the fact that you've decided to take it, put it into a book and share that with our communities all around the world to help them achieve better brain. Um, so tell me about how you got into uh, this field, because I'm always interested in uh, the journeys that our guests took, because some people pivot and go into, you know, heart health, or they go into digestive health, and you've gone into brain health, you've decided to focus on this part. Right. Well, that wasn't such a leap for me, Nicolette, and thank you for all those kind words in your introduction. But I trained as an experimental psychologist with a focus on physiological psychology. And so I was always interested in how the brain worked. And um, my husband always teases me that I'm not a real psychologist and I never wanted to be. I just, I never helped people, I studied them. But my research was ended up being very clinically relevant and I know has helped many, many people. So um, when I say that I just wanted to study them, I meant I did animal research for a while. I, 
I was always drawn to the question of, well, biochemically, what is the basis of that? So I'm self-taught in some biochemistry. And then I did my postdoctoral training in neurophysiology. And so I was very interested in how cells communicate with each other. But then I had the opportunity to get a job in an area that is uh, in a healthcare setting and study human behavior. And I was very glad to get away from animal research and cellular research. And so I continued asking the question, what's the biological basis of this behavior? And if you ask that question, if you ignore nutrition, you're ignoring what's really fundamental. You know that. Yeah, but, it, and it's interesting that you say that um, because I know that our audience, not all of them will know that, but also I know that a lot of physicians that are trained in obviously total body health, they study the entire body in med school. Once they graduate, often there's such a huge disconnect between how nutrition affects the body to the point that many physicians that I worked with, the physicians of my clients, um, when I have to interact with them, they'll often write things in the reports to say, you know, well, your, your disease has nothing to do with your diet or, mm. you know, your mental health has nothing to do with your diet. And they're writing that now in 2021, which is just so shocking. So Let's go into that. And I would like you to help sure. our audience understand whether they're a physician or whether they're in grade school, um, how does nutrition affect the brain? As with everything in our brain and body, um, nutrients are the foundation. But more specifically, what got me, and this is very consistent with your experience, Nicolette, what really bugged me was the number of physicians over the year, I was always in medical faculties, you know, for my work and, and even for my training. So when, when docs would say to me, who respected me enough to raise the issue, they say, Bonnie, those minerals and vitamins you're studying, they don't actually affect cellular function in the brain, do they? And I go, you know, why? it's not their fault. It's their education yeah. or lack thereof. But then I, I began to see that this is something that we all needed to learn. And so in the book, for example, chapter two, we spend some time explaining brain metabolism. And the very term, I'm sure it turns some people off, but this book is written for the lay audience. And everyone tells me it's so simple and so clear once they understand that you don't get from chemical A over here to chemical B over here, unless you've got a whole lot of cofactors to make the enzymatic action work. And then when we tell them, hey, guess what the cofactors are? Minerals and vitamins. <laughs> then they understand, oh, I want my cells over here to convert to cells over here. I want my tryptophan to be converted to, to uh, serotonin. I want all the breakdown products to happen efficiently. Then they understand they've got to have this abundant supply of what we call micronutrients, minerals and vitamins, pulsing through their blood supply in the brain all the time. Yeah. And, and I love well, I love that you just brought up micronutrients because we do live in a world right now that is still predominantly focused on macronutrients, Macro, right. fats, carbohydrates, proteins. And right. it's so shocking even how, um, you know, often when we talk about the micronutrients, for example, we lump salts all into one category. So mm. everybody has this idea that when we talk about salt and what kind of salt your body needs, everybody really focuses on 
sodium, 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 right? Like it's, you know, putting salt in our food when we cook and, you know, and this is the part where we really have to get away from the macronutrient conversation and really dive into the micronutrient conversation because you could get, you can consume those macronutrients in abundance and not get any micronutrients. That's, you've just described the ultra processed packaged stuff that some people call UPFs, uh, ultra processed foods. I don't like that F, um, I'll explain. Well, it suggests that it's food. Food is what makes our cells grow and develop and function. And there are a whole lot of ultra processed products that don't provide anything useful to make cells grow or function. So I'm not real thrilled with the UPF term, ultra processed food, anyway. But if you look at your packaged food, what you will see exactly as you're saying, Nicolette, is you'll see protein, you'll see carbohydrate, but usually the wrong kind, mostly refined carbs, and you'll see fats. And again, usually mostly the wrong kind, saturated and so forth, but not the omega-3s, et cetera. But it's the micronutrients that are missing. You might see two or three or four in any given package, very tiny amounts. And it's not enough for optimal brain function. So that's what we teach in the brain. And I was going to say something about um, the blood, the circulation, if I may, that I I think puts it in perspective. So, you know, our children are taught the same way I was taught 100 years ago in elementary school. You've got to eat right to have strong bones and muscles. But what we weren't taught is that mostly when we eat, we are feeding our greedy little brains. So we as adults have approximately six liters of blood going around in our bodies and brains. I I treat them separately, but we all know the brain is part of the body. Anyway, six liters of blood at any given time. And our brain is only about one kilogram. And so you would think that one sixth, or sorry, say you weigh 150 or say you weigh 50 kilograms. I'm sorry, I'm always converting between pounds and kilos for audiences. This is Canadian. Say you weigh 50 kilograms, then you would think that one 50th of your blood should be in your brain at any given time. But in fact, your brain is gobbling up 20 to 40% of the blood circulating through your body at any given time. It is so when you are feeding your brain, and I mean with both oxygen and micronutrients, you are really, you know, that's what you're eating for. And so that when we show that diagram uh, that's in chapter two about the tryptophan pathway, I've had people come up to me after lectures and say, you know, when you first put up that diagram, it was like, I don't like looking at stuff like this, right? But when you explained it, I realized this might be the only slide I ever remember, (laughs) which I try not to take personally, but they say, now I get it. I understand why what I eat matters. Every minute of every day, what you eat is either feeding your brain or not. And I love that um, you said that, that if this is the only thing I remember, and it's so important, I think when we're giving talks, and I just spoke to one of my staff about this earlier as we're launching a new program. And I just said, you know, what are the three things out of all the things, the six weeks of, you know, information we're going to be sharing in this new program, what are the three things we want people to take away? Because of the fact our brains require nutrients 
and we to create the energy right and our brain is consuming so much energy and our body is really designed to try to not have to use up too much of that crucial vital energy and so really if we can make it as easy for people you know for by like if this is your one takeaway i want you to remember this right so you do that perfectly with that. and i know the diagram that you're talking about and it is overwhelming to sometimes look at the the science and the diagrams and make sense of it but i just love how you do it in your book this book it can be read literally by like my teenagers um we're flipping through it the other day and I was like, this is amazing. Like they can pick it up and understand it and read it. Um, and we need kids to understand this. Like they should be like, your book should be used in high schools and in elementary schools. Elementary, if not the whole book, then at least we should be getting into the curriculum information about why nutrition matters to the brain. Yeah. And by the way, you used the word energy, Nicolette. So I want to add so that we're not oversimplifying things for yeah. your audience. Um, yes, all this is true for the brain, but in addition, uh, a lot of people understand that we have mitochondria in every cell of our brain and body, and that mitochondria produce our energy molecule, which is called ATP. And guess what? When you look at a mitochondrion and you look at all the steps of production and, and the Krebs cycle and, all, and the electron transport chain, et cetera, you will see, you don't need to know all that machinery. All you need to know is nutrients go in mm -hmm. and ATP comes out. So that's why we really, really need to be eating a lot of micronutrients. And yes, we need to teach our kids. I've been taught it down to grade six in two circumstances, but I haven't ever had the opportunity to really influence the curriculum. And I love that, um, again, I love everything about you, Bonnie. So I'm going to be saying that over and over again. And I love, and I love, love um, yes. And and we need energy too and nutrients yes. just to be able to love and create those hormones and everything. Everything requires that. But what I was going to say about the mitochondria, my daughter, um, she's in grade eight and it might've been last year when she was in grade seven, but I love, she's in Waldorf. So the kids have to draw their science textbooks. They don't actually get a physical textbook at Waldorf. The kids create their own textbooks. So as they learn about everything, they do the diagrams, they write the text, and then at the end, they have their own textbook that they've wow. created. It's wow. beautiful. So her diagram, I wish I had it here, of the mitochondria, it was so beautiful. And by drawing it herself and writing the text, she remembers so much of it. But of course, everything in there, like they're I, there, I still didn't see the emphasis coming through the teacher of the importance of the nutrients needed to create the mitochondria, but also the inputs into the mitochondria. It was more about the structure of the mitochondria, right? So, but this also translates to when I attend physician conferences, and I always tell this story that I remember this one conference I was at, the guy was like, I don't get this energy part. And I was like, but you're a physician. Like, do you not remember studying the mitochondria in the Krebs cycle? And he's like, oh yeah, but that was just for like one exam. Right. Right. It so it's true. And he's like, there's too many steps to remember. So I forgot it all. And I said, okay, same thing. Well, if I, if there's one thing to remember about the Krebs cycle, it is the inputs in, and those inputs are things like malic acid that comes from the beautiful skin of an apple, you know, like, like getting him to understand that all of these nutrients, they have to come from somewhere. And if they're not going to come from supplements, then they need to come from food That's and we right. eat food every day. And he, it was just like a light bulb went off for him, a physician. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. I'm not so, at all surprised. 
Yeah. So I love that you also take the time to explain that in your book too. And just in this podcast, because, you know, we talk about energy and energy being this esoteric thing in Ayurvedic medicine or Chinese medicine, when truly it's not this esoteric concept. It's the fact that we literally are producing plus and minus sign energy every single day. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, maybe we should work with Waldorf to change their curriculum a little bit. I think we absolutely need to. Yeah, we need to. And because we have all of these teachers that are also scrambling to teach this information to their students in little parts, you know, even around the concept of sugar, you know, my youngest daughter, um, you know, they had, they were talking about sugar, but it was talked about in too much of a macro sense. So the kids left thinking, well, it's actually better to drink a diet Coke than it is to, not that the school would ever promote mm-hmm. that. But when you looked at how the charts were that they drew had, you know, the diet Coke had less sugar than yeah. for example, a fresh, fresh pressed vegetable juice. Mm. Right. So, so we need to, we need to course correct and help teachers also be able to teach the science around this um, definitely in a much more uh, holistic way, but, but with also that truth brought into it for what the applicability looks like in our real lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we could definitely do that. I will help you. You can work with my daughter's school. Okay, I'm available. Amazing. (laughs) So one of the questions that um, I really wanted to chat about is this, I call it an epidemic of mental health, Mm -hmm. disease, Mm -hmm. illness, and, uh, and conditions. And I know that you had mentioned in one of the emails going back and forth, you had commented on on our use of the word disease and illness. So could you first touch on that? And, um, and, and what, how you approach mental health. Is it, a, is it is a disease, a condition, an illness? What is it to you? Actually, I try not to use any of those words anymore because colleagues have, who I really respect have educated me about how sometimes we use things like mental illness just for the shock value, but that doesn't make people feel any better. And they all tend to use mental health challenges, mental health okay. problems. Um, There are a lot of people who are um, like the same here movement, like so everybody can experience some challenges that are overwhelming emotionally in life at some point. That doesn't mean you need to stick them in a diagnostic category. I mean, it kind of comes down to the whole issue of categorization. In our book, we had, we really felt we had to list the diagnostic and statistical manual categories of mental disorders. And when we do research, we have to use the criteria for the mental disorders. But you know, they're, they're not comfortable. We have them uh, in part because when people do get a diagnosis, they, it enables them to access services. So mm-hmm. it's important for that reason. But nobody fits into just one of those. And in fact, I know this is a little tangential to your question, Nicolette, but I always like to tell this story, I I think just because, um, because I didn't deal with it well. A mother and her son were arriving in my office uh, to be screened to be in a study. And they arrived a little late and apologized, but they had been over with the pediatrician in another part of the hospital. And they arrived and right in front of her son who just crept lower and lower and lower, she said, 
it's not enough that he has ADHD. Now I find out he has oppositional defiant disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. And with every disorder category, that little boy just shrank and, oh, it was so sad, mm -hmm. very sad. So these, it doesn't do any good to pile these diagnoses on, on top of people. And those of us who have studied micronutrient treatment in addition to dietary intervention, what we see consistently is that when they're, well, we assume their brain is working better because their symptoms resolve so well. And when that happens, it, they don't happen in a category. They happen across the board. So exactly. maybe we're studying um, ADHD and impulsivity, but the parents come back and say, uh, he's sleeping better. He's not as constipated as he was. He's calmer, you know, and we weren't even measuring those things, right? But it's overall, you're, you're creating a healthier brain. So anyway, sorry, that was kind of a long tangent. No, but I, it's such an important topic to discuss because of all of these different labels and and yes a hundred percent to be able to get access to medical care and medical services we sometimes need to have those labels hands down super important and also they help us to sort of identify what's the next step in you know in potential treatment and treatment being you know for some people if they haven't discovered the world of nutrition yes the drugs might be the only option that they feel that they have. And so they have to go down. You have to take certain actions, right? So, you know, and other people will discover, you know, especially for depression, we know the statistics and the research that really the antidepressants that are out there when they compare to exercise and nutrition do mm -hmm. not compare. But meanwhile, we still keep pumping out, you know, these antidepressants and still getting no result. And you even talk about that in, and I don't know if it's the first chapter of your book, um, where you talk about how at events, you'll ask the audience and say, everybody in the audience, please put up your hand if you have been affected or know someone in your immediate family who's affected by, you know, who, who's experiencing a mental health condition. And everybody in the, in the audience puts up their hand. And then you ask the next question, which I, think, which I just think is brilliant, because I often ask that first question to the audiences as well that I speak oh. to, but you take it a step further and you say, now, how many of you have found that the treatments that they're on is actually helping them? You and say almost, resolve, we say resolve the symptoms, if you don't mind my question. Right, please. Thank you. Because- yeah. I'll explain why that's really important, but go ahead. And, yeah, then, and then how many, and how many people, you know, have, they have to do these medications that like help to resolve their conditions right. and basically nobody puts up their hand. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, speak very, to that a little bit more, because I think it's important that, you know, we, people who are listening to this need to know this um, yeah. information about the treatments that are currently being used for so many mental health conditions. You know, we have reached a point where I think our whole society thinks that resolution of mental health symptoms is not possible, but only feeling better. That's why I stopped you, okay? Because if you ask a group of people who are taking, say, an antidepressant, how many of you are taking it because it's helping you, you'll find the majority of them will not raise their hands. They're taking it because they're scared to stop because if they 
if they admit that the medication is not helping them, then what are they gonna do because they're at their wits end? So they cling sometimes to the medications. But by the way, your audience has to know that some people are taking it because they do feel better, but they haven't resolved the symptoms. I mean, medication helps people. There is no question that some people are helped, at least in the short term. This is more of a question for long-term value, but um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting when, when our whole society thinks that all we can do is just make people feel better as opposed to going back to feeling normal. That's, yeah. how did we get to this point? So that is a great question. How did we get to this point? And I know you have <laughs> many ideas on that. <laughs> well, it's, it's partly because we do have such an incredible epidemic of mental health problems. And just so that, again, so your audience has a handle on how bad it is. Um, in about 1960, uh, the best government prevalence data, and we show a graph and give you references in the book, was that less than 1% of people in Western societies had a mental disorder. And now, according to the World Health Organization and the CDC, it's currently 20%. And that's in my lifetime. I can't believe that. It's gone from less than 1% to 20%. But that's just the point prevalence, meaning at any given point in time. If you then ask the question, well, what percentage of the population will at some point in their lives have a mental disorder, then it's 50%. And Nicolette, that's crazy. That's yeah. not craziness in people. That's something crazy in our system. There's something crazy. And of course, we think nutrition is part of the explanation. Crazy in the way we are treating our brains because 50% prevalence rate? In life, lifetime prevalence, that's, it's just unfathomable to me. Many people, I'm in my 70s. When I think back to elementary school, I can think of one child in my class because we were a group that kind of, kind of like Waldorf went through together for many years. One child who maybe would have been diagnosed with ADHD. One. Yeah. And I don't remember any genuine mood or anxiety disorders. There were some moody people though. So maybe, you know, but not 50%, not no. even 20%. So here's the question that I know is coming from the skeptics that would say, well, it's just that we didn't know about those conditions right. or that people didn't talk about it. So can you speak to that? Because I know like I've read the research and, and that shows that it's not that it's not That's because right. of that. Yeah. It's, you know, somebody should have a student do a little project. If you have anyone looking for a small project, my impression is that five years ago, um, the, the study saying, oh, it's just because people are more likely to come forward and we have more diagnostic categories, that those articles pretty much stopped. But prior to that time, we had article after article just saying it's great People are more educated about mental health problems. So more people are self-referring. Uh, yeah. And everybody listening to this, I hope, agrees that it's good that when people have problems, they come forward. So yeah. no worry. It's, there's no real change. But they aren't saying that anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'll bet you that if you tried to find any articles in the major psychiatry journals on 
claiming that the increase was due to increased self-referral. I'll bet you you wouldn't find any for the last five years, but I don't know that for sure. No, I have. Yeah. And I mean, definitely I follow many different doctors who speak about this specifically and I like how they explain it because they're talking about it's, it's not just an anecdotal story. Like I'm not feeling well. It's that a lot of these individuals who have these mental health conditions, they have a whole onslaught of symptoms that go along with it. Everything from, you know, the leaky gut, the excessive diarrhea, the that gut brain axis um, connection, which is, you know, just just appears broken. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, and and all the symptoms. Like it's not just a matter of not being able to concentrate in school. It's like significant mood disorders that, um, you know, are affecting these children and and adults as well, um, you know, not being able to show up at work, like it's quite significant, not being able to make eye contact in a lot of kids who have, you know, ADHD, autism, and so on. And so it, it's, yeah, not just that, oh, well, you know what, we just didn't come forward before, but we're coming forward now. These are significant uh, impacts on the person's ability to function well in yeah. society and just function and show up. But, you know, the way we interpret data is interesting, too, and mm. in how it's changed. I, I wouldn't be able to pull these references out real easily, but I'm certain that it was in the late 1980s, at least two, and I think it was three, surveys of general medical clinics were published, which showed a relationship, a correlation between mental health problems and reported gut problems, mm-hmm. just GI disturbance. And every one of them reported it as, you know, it's really upsetting to have a mental health problem. So it upsets your tummy. (laughs) And I read those and thought, what? (laughs) You know, you look back at that now, you can't believe it was published that way, but that's how they were interpreted. It's actually an interesting illustration of why we should ignore uh, over-interpretation of correlational data, right? Yeah, definitely. But it's also, I always find that when, you know, when um, researchers arrive at these conclusions in their studies, the biggest thing that stands out for me is, well, doesn't that just show the power of our brain to be able to affect our body, right? Mm-hmm. And so then it takes me back to, well, if that's our case, like even looking at all the placebo and nocebo studies, you know, mm-hmm. that there's still, in my opinion, not enough research done in those areas. And we know the powerful effects of our brain's ability to physically affect our body. And so shouldn't we be doing more work in this area, as opposed right. to thinking that it's going to be a physical approach in the form of a medication or a drug that's going to solve the problem. But then of course they just, you know, write those comments in this, in the results of the study and the conclusion and say more research is needed, more research, <laughs> more research yeah. needed here. Um, but uh, let's, can we talk about the brain gut access um, and how mm-hmm. nutrients play a role there? Cause it's really important. I think for people to understand that, you know, I like in the beginning when you say we're feeding our brain, but we're ultimately feeding our microbiome as well. Right. Well, it does all tie together and uh, it's hard to know where to begin. Um, there, we talk in our microbiome chapter, we talk about microbiomes that are specialized all over the body. And some of that is, I think, really revealing to people like the uh, communities of, of microbes in your eyebrows are different from the communities of microbes in your uh, gums and the ones above the gum line are different from the ones below the gum line. And then 
swamped by all of that is the massive um, microbial community, which is part of our gastrointestinal system or gut as we call it. But really when we talk about the GI system, we're really talking about going from the mouth all the way down out through the anus because, and this is something for people, uh, you know, it's kind of taken for granted, but I think my grandparents were very careful to chew their food a lot of times, right? Yeah. And in this fast food era, when so many people are eating food that is so soft, you don't even really need to chew it. You just kind of press it against the roof of your mouth with your tongue. You are skipping the whole first stage of digestion where microbes, enzymes especially, are, are breaking down the nutrients in the food that you're eating. So we might need to go back to the way our ancestors ate. That's number one. But then when you get down into the stomach and then into the intestines, the uh, microbial communities are ginormous. Mm -hmm. And they are, we are so dependent upon them. They are the things that keep us alive and healthy and well. So the very first thing you can do for your brain is to make sure that your gut is working properly. And I know that we had come from a very, we live in a very constipated society because people are not getting enough fiber. So um, in retrospect, I wish we had had a section in the book on prebiotics, which mm. I think we have one sentence as all. But uh, the thing people need to know is, you know, there's this fad of, of taking probiotics, which is trying to put healthy bugs into your gut. And the results are very mixed, not very impressive for mental health at all. And there can be a lot of reasons for that. But we know that if you are feeding the good bugs, the fiber, the kind of fiber, accessible fiber that they need and want to live and grow and multiply. I mean, they multiply in like, I don't know, 36 hours usually yeah. or something very short like that. So then you are not only giving your body more nutrients because you're getting them in those like crunchy vegetables, for example, but you're feeding the healthy bugs. And when you feed your healthy bugs, they're going to become the dominant ones and you'll have a healthier gut because, and when you're giving them that kind of fiber, you're going to have more regular bowel movements, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course the final step, which is the one I'm more interested in, then the nutrients are there to be absorbed yeah. into the bloodstream and to go up to our brains. Exactly. But, yeah, it all begins in the gut. It all begins in the gut. And oh, I also, and I like what you said about that, that it all begins in the mouth. And again, I just had this conversation with a friend because she was saying, she's like, okay, well, I eat so well. And, and she does, she actually eats really well, very whole foods, lots of fruits and vegetables, predominantly, like really nothing processed and refined. And, but, you know, when we eat together, she'll be finished her food in a matter of seconds, and I'm still eating an hour later. Yeah. And so, and so she intuitively said to me this weekend, she said, I bet you if I just ate slower, that would probably fix half the problem. And I said, probably even more. And then I started to explain, you know, that for example, to wake up and have a smoothie in the morning, 
you know, again, you're not chewing your food. And so for individuals who eat fast food, I have a lot of clients who say, well, I don't eat fast food. And I say, well, do you drink smoothies? That is also fast food because you're the blenders blending it. You put it to your lips. You're not actually allowing it to sit in your mouth to trigger the brain, to start releasing the gastrointestinal juices and the hydrochloric acid. And so you're hit and it's cold. Often they're putting frozen bananas and, you know, and so you just like, pound your gut well first your stomach and then your large intestine and small intestine with basically unchewed food and so what if you were to actually take all of those foods and just chew them yourself and see how you feel then interesting i've never heard that comment about smoothies but i see your point yeah and we don't our clients who do our eat real to eat real to heal program to reverse chronic disease we eliminate smoothies immediately they do um take in juices because the juicing removes the fiber so they eat still their three meals a day if they want snacks on top of that they can have that um but and again all plant-based whole food um you know nothing Mm -hmm. refined but absolutely no smoothies whatsoever. And the juices are more just like an IV transfusion, I say directly into the bloodstream, because you can absorb it through osmosis, even starting from your lips and cheeks and your esophagus and all the way down. Um, So it doesn't impact your digestion because the fiber is not there. And that's the difference between, um, yeah, the smoothies and juices. So yeah, I like that you said that Mm. the part about chewing is so very important. Mm -hmm. So I want to dive into your book because your book doesn't only explain the science behind, you know, creating a better brain, which it does beautifully. And I love that you um, took the time to do that, but it's also a how to. So for when you're working with individuals and when people read your book, like, can we take them through some of the things that they can do, you know, starting from when this podcast is over, what are some of the next steps that they can take to start developing a better brain? Well, I want to talk about money for a moment to answer your question. Okay. Yes. Let's talk about money. So uh, I can almost remember the day I was enthusiastically giving a lecture and talking about a Mediterranean whole foods kind of diet. And I was speaking to a whole lot of clinicians and one of them interrupted me and said, could you just skip over this part? Because my clients don't have the money to buy this kind Mm -hmm. of food. And I thought, what? I thought you could, I didn't realize how big an issue it was. So when I looked into it, though, I discovered that that person was wrong. But there is a myth out there that we need to dispel. People think that eating whole foods has to cost more. And it is true that if you're eating a Mediterranean diet with lobster and um, haddock uh, twice a week, and if you're eating meat, having steak one or two nights a week or whatever, yeah, you're spending more money. There's no question. But a part of the Mediterranean diet is to learn how to eat beans and lentils. Mm-hmm. And these give you, they give you fiber, they give you protein, and they give you all kinds of minerals and vitamins. And they are dirt cheap if you buy them dried. I remember when a fellow I, I used to work with who was a very new immigrant and was saving money to bring his wife and kids over, uh, told me that he bought a large bag. And he, by the way, he looked big and strong and healthy. And, and he was a vegetarian and he would 
buy a big bag of some kind of beans or mix them um, and cook them all week long and cost them like ten dollars. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, it's now, it's true. Yeah, it's and people so say that all the time. So inexpensive, and you are right to bring up the money. I like that you um, address that because I know in the back of everybody's mind, you know, we're living in a world where it's like you almost need three, you know, family members to be earning an income to be able to afford their homes in Canada or the U.S. And it is we we get that money is an issue, and we get that when we launch a course. We often get lots of court, you know, sometimes the course is twenty seven dollars or forty seven dollars, and the people will say like that's my budget for the week and you're teaching like we don't have 47 dollars to spend on a course and it's so depending what community they come from and and I get that money we have to talk about money it's the number one question that comes up after every talk I give and you are correct the food is cheap when you're eating potatoes and carrots and beets and squash and grains and you know and lentils and beans like the, the, you could buy that stuff very very cheaply very and, if and you, have it be organic too. That's yes, the beautiful thing. That's right. Yeah. So uh, you, your audience maybe needs to know that if they really don't have the time or interest in cooking lentils or beans, well, lentils are quick. I mean, you mm -hmm. can half hour and you've got a dinner, but um, the, the dried beans and legumes, if, if they really are not interested in using a pressure cooker or whatever and can't be there while it's cooking, you can still buy it in cans, rinse it off so you get rid of the extra sodium. Um, and it's still very inexpensive, very. Um, but but it, people shouldn't exaggerate how long it takes to cook dried beans either. I always mm -hmm. say, you know, you, you rinse them. First of all, you sort them, make sure there are no little stones in there, although that seems to be a thing of the past. It was more true when I was a child. We had to get check them over and then rinse them, put them in a pot of water to soak, and go to sleep. Yeah. This is not hard work. Just go to bed and let them soak. But the next day, depending on the beans, you might need to boil them for a couple hours or simmer them for a couple hours. So when some people can't be in the kitchen, I'm retired, I can be in the kitchen mm -hmm. and it can be simmering. Or you can use an Instapot, but some people don't have money for that. So okay. buy them in cans. Go on, and this is one more thing about saving money, I want to say, go online and just use your search engine to uh, put in the words recipe, let's say black beans um, or lentils or whatever. You will have five to 10 million recipes in less than one second. Yeah. And th there's just an infinite amount you can do. I actually wanted to have our, we have a whole chapter on recipes as you know, and I actually wanted to have our whole chapter be on that kind of cooking and yeah. other people on my team said no we can't be so narrow so we even have meat dishes and everything in there yeah and you know and I love that you include recipes in the book too because of the fact that you know some people are great in the kitchen they're intuitive they just like can throw whatever is in the kitchen you know into a pot and create something fabulous and other people can't um and what you know we often like to tell people too is that you don't have to go out there and buy all brand new recipe books, you know, mm. for, you know, more vegetarian or plant-based eating, plant-strong eating, you can take the existing recipes that you have. And, you know, if it calls for, you know, a large steak and not a lot of vegetables, all you do is just tell your brain, actually, let's just triple the quantity of the vegetables that they're talking about. You still use all the same herbs and spices. And then what you can do is just replace the steak for 
rice and beans, like whole grains and rice or, um, you know, and, and beans or lentils. And it's just an easy swap over still using all the same herbs, um, and spices and flavorings that they're using. So you don't have to go out there and buy brand new recipe books. And like you said too, everyone has a phone, you get instance to millions of recipes within like, you know, a second. So, um, hands down. So with the, um, a lot of people will say though, that, you know, they can't digest, Lentils and beans. And lentils? What you, yeah, a lot of people are now are finding, you know, and exactly what you said about, you know, you know, in the late 80s, you know, Dr. Zach Bush, uh, you know, he's a regenerative, um, he's, he's a medical doctor. He had went from chemo research to functional medicine, internal medicine to um, now teaching basically food as medicine. And then now realizing, well, we need to have healthy food grown in a healthy way. So reclaiming soil, so regenerative soil um, and medicine. So he actually teaches farmers now, but he's, he found exactly the same thing in the late eighties. He just saw an abundance of children being diagnosed with um, ADD, ADHD, autism, um, also seeing a shift in the animals. So, you know, cows actually developing very similar symptoms as well in poor gastrointestinal health. And, um, and he relates it to the glyphosate use and right. pesticides and herbicides um, from that point. And so what I'm seeing with clients now too, is that their food sensitivities are just through the roof that they cannot digest you know, for example, nightshades and beans and, you know, lentils, and they have a hard time with grains. So basically they're left eating bananas and romaine lettuce and like really the number of foods is like going down and down and down. Whereas um, by actually eating this way, what we do is we teach them how they can start to eat in abundance again, and those food sensitivities go away. But have you noticed any relationship between the ability to digest food and the mental health conditions? Um, Well, others have studied it, and we report on some of it in the book, and it's definitely there. But the question we keep asking is the one you just raised, Nicolette. When people tell us they have a sensitivity to a food, is it the food? Is it, for example, if, even if someone tells me they can't eat beef, I'm, I might say, are you sure it's the beef? It's not the hormones and antibiotics. Mm. Um, maybe it's the beef, but anyway, but we, we make an assumption that we're getting pure, uncontaminated food and nothing could be further from the truth. Something like 97% of the land in North America, the arable land has been treated with glyphosate. This is outrageous. Glyphosate is, you know, from my point of view, I mean, you can talk about it affecting digestion, affecting gut and everything. All those things are probably true. But from my point of view, I know this, the research is quite solid showing that glyphosate prevents us from getting all of the vitamins and minerals that we need out of the crops that are grown exposed to glyphosate. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is really interesting. Do you know where glyphosate originally was, came from, where it was patented? Isn't it an antibiotic? Uh, Not initially. It was used to chelate minerals to clean pipes. So it was to grab minerals out of pipes and that was in the early 60s, I think it was 1964. It did was, was found to have some antibiotic potential, and I think, but it did, that didn't last. It didn't look real good for whatever reason. But think about, um, now this requires a little review about how we get our minerals and vitamins. 
I don't know if your audience knows. I didn't really know until I started going to agricultural meetings. Um, oh, I have to come back and tell you about that, uh, agricultural meetings. I'm just making a note, okay? Okay, perfect. But um, yeah, uh, we, we go off on these directions and I forget. So, um, so what glyphosate does is it chelates, especially the minerals. Why should we care? Well, the way we get our nutrients is this. If a plant is grown in very healthy soil, the plant will absorb roughly 15 minerals from the soil and it will hold them and use them as needed for its various functions. And one of its functions is to manufacture vitamins. We come along, we who cannot manufacture vitamins or minerals, and we can't absorb them from the soil. Plants are much smarter than we are. Um, the only part of us that can manufacture any nutrient is that some of those smart, good, healthy gut microbes, they can synthesize a tiny amount of the B vitamins. Isn't that interesting? Uh -huh. But you and I can't do it, just our bugs. So we come along, we eat the plants, okay? We get, if the plant got 15, roughly 15 minerals, and it has produced its 15 vitamins, we eat the plants or we eat the animals that eat the plants and we get roughly 30 micronutrients. What does glyphosate do? It captures and holds some of the minerals in the plants so that they are not useful. And so it affects both the mineral availability for us and also possibly the vitamin synthesis. I'm less certain about that. But the point is the glyphosate is blocking us from getting whatever nutrients those plants would have been able to give us. And, and what do the governments care about? Cancer. That's all they ever care about. Glyphosate, does it cause cancer in six weeks in mice? Okay, it doesn't? Fine, let's approve it. You know, I mean, this is a false standard to use. Our brain health is very sensitive to the availability of minerals and vitamins. We should be more concerned about our, well, not more, we're pretty concerned about cancer too, <laughs> but we yeah. should be concerned about our brains. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I love, if you, I keep saying I love, I need to come up with a different word, uh, but it's just true. Just pure love and joy for how you explained that. Um, and I actually hadn't heard it explained that way. I know glyphosate for how it affects the microbes in the soil and it damages yes. their micro. And so then they also prevent um, that the nutrient because they're processing nutrients in the soil that then get taken up to the plant. So it's like the complete loop is broken entirely by the use of glyphosate. And for anybody who does know what glyphosate is it's uh, the household name is roundup and actually yes uh farmers are using glyphosate all over the world predominantly in north america but it's actually household consumption of roundup so spraying it on the grass and spraying it to have your green lawn um, and your green gardens and then also what happens is it, it gets dried by the sun when you spray it and then it blows in the air and then it ends up in our waterways and so if anybody is using roundup out there it's really important to transition away stop using it please and start looking for more natural methods like my daughter for example grinds up eggshells and she dries them puts them in the blender grinds them up and she sprinkles those in her garden we throw seaweed in the garden we put shells in the garden you know compost in the garden there's lots of ways that you can um build healthy soil and not have to worry about using um, these insecticides and pesticides like roundup and glyphosate right. 
Right. Yeah. So I was going to say something about agriculture. Yes, I want to know about this. this. Yeah. So 100%. Um, a few years ago, I got to know an agricultural expert from uh, Winnipeg named Harvey Dan. And Harvey was just outraged at how nutrient density of our food was just falling by the wayside. And farmers are not rewarded for having nutrient dense food. They're rewarded for having a lot of crops, quantity, not quality, okay? And so he was very concerned about the balance of minerals in the soil. Agriculture people use the word balance a little differently. They really mean the adequacy of minerals in the soil. It's not just the, that they're in balance, but that they're all there. And so he started holding an annual conference on nutrient density of our food. And he, he says, I don't remember this, that I was the reason he started doing it, but because he heard one of my talks. So I've been giving the, the keynote for before COVID. We did it for three years in a row. As a result of that, I started getting inviting, invited to agricultural meetings outside of Canada and, and also um, some of the com wonderful compost council in um, uh, Eastern Canada and also one in Europe. And what I found was they loved hearing about this research that Julia Rutledge, my co-author, and I have been doing on nutrition and mental health, brain health, because these are all people who are interested in regenerative agriculture or whatever you wanna call it, improving the soil. And, and we were saying, folks, it's really important for the our brains, you know? Yeah. And it may, it. I mean, I, this one conference, I felt like I was up on a pedestal. I was just reporting our work. But to them, it was like, at last, I under, they understood how important what they're doing is. Because it's really hard to go against the mega farms and the mm -hmm. factory farming and everything. And it, it really is great for them to know that it's important for brain health. I think it's a great entryway into all industries that would not normally look at nutrition. I think it's so important to focus on those, um, those ailments, those conditions that can, you know, that affect our ourselves and our loved ones, our family and our friends. Mm -hmm. And it is the entryway. I was in doing environmental policy work for government and to try and get someone to change their behavior to save the planet. Mm -hmm not going to happen, but mm. to get someone to change their behavior because they have diabetes and they're facing a potential amputation or being put on insulin. Oh my gosh. It's amazing to watch people become soil advocates and, you know, like switching to more plant-based eating and to really focus on the micronutrients instead of the macronutrients. You know, mm. it's, it's, it's a brilliant segue that it unites us all, especially right now as Alzheimer's dementia is now the, you know, basically hot topic and everybody's so worried about developing these conditions and knowing that we can prevent that simply by making sure we have mm -hmm. enough nutrients, you know, from when we're, you know, in utero up until we're at that potential age where Alzheimer's and dementia starts to set in. And we know we can turn off the genes for Alzheimer's now just simply by having enough nutrients in the body, you know, that affects our DNA, it affects our gene expression. Um, so I think, yeah, you're smart to do that. But you know what, the media in general still is reluctant. There was just another study came out from Finland last week, showing uh, prevention of dementia with nutrition. And the research is very strong there, we need more, you always need more. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
but it's very strong and yet none of it gets into the general public. And yet the big to do this week about whether the FDA was going to approve the first ever drug for dementia. I don't even know how that turned out. I wasn't interested. I mean, forget the drugs. Just this is in our book, although dementia is not the major topic, it's really more mental health. Um, but we do touch on the dementia stuff or literature. But to us, it's an all an empowering message. It's saying, you can do something about your own health. You don't have to live in fear that, oh, dementia might fall out of the sky and affect me or depression might fall out of the sky and affect me. You can do something for yourself. So what can we do? Because I know people who are listening to this is, are saying, oh my gosh, okay, this is amazing. I get the connection between my gut and my brain. I get that we need nutrients. I get, so what, what are the things, what are some simple things that we could be doing starting now that we might not be doing yet, just because we don't know about the power of micronutrients to affect our brain? How do we get micro, how do we get micronutrients? How do you get them? Well, that's, we just talked about how hard it can be, but it's not in the soil. So first of all, it, everybody should be improving their diet. And I know there are some people who have spectacularly wonderful diets um, and don't eat any processed products, but you can always do better. Yes. <laughs> we can always do it. Stay vigilant. But if you occasionally want, as I always say, a chocolate chip cookie, don't beat yourself up about it. You know, I think the 80-20 rule is a little too generous. I think it should be more like 90-10 or something. But thank you. Yes. Will you agree with that? I 100% yes. agree. Yeah. yeah. We don't have, yeah. we're, we're a human body. We don't have much room for error, I would say, mm. because of the fact that our brain is like needing all of those nutrients every single day, every single nanosecond of the day. So to deprive your body, like if you do eat, you know, a meal of processed refined food, well, you're not going to eat another meal for a few more hours. So now you've just deprived your body and your brain of nutrients for an entire probably four, five, six, seven hours. How is that going to affect you? And if you're not going to eat a beautiful nutrient dense meal the next moment, because let's say you just, you know, ate fast food for lunch or unhealthy food for lunch, and then you're going to do that again for dinner. Now you're going to sleep for eight to 10 hours. You've just yeah. deprived yourself for almost an entire day. And some That's people right. are doing that day after day after day. So I agree. The 90, 10 rule, maybe even the 95, maybe. you know, five. <laughs> Let's see how small we can make that exactly. range. Yes. So, yeah. but in addition, uh, some of the people who are listening to this are probably thinking, I can't do any better. I am still struggling with depression and anxiety, and I eat the best diet of anybody I know, and I do, don't eat any processed food. What these women are off their rockers if they think nutrition could be the answer for me. Well, Julia Rucklage and I have both seen people of that type who were already eating a really good diet and yet still experiencing symptoms and with additional micronutrients in pill form or what most people would call supplements, we were able to see a resolution of symptoms. What is that about? Let's talk yes. about that for a minute. It all boils down to individual differences. And I remember the first time I ever discussed this uh, with my um, department head in pediatrics, he was a pediatric gastroenterologist. And he said, are you telling me that mental illness is an inborn error of metabolism? 
And that is exactly true. And Linus Pauling, much bigger, giant yeah. figure than me, said it a long time ago. And uh, it was like in 1968. He said, you know, mental illness runs in families. Mental disorders run in families. And probably what is being inherited has something to do with the metabolic function that controls the essential nutrients in the brain. And so now, what is that like uh, 50 years later, we have some models um, in physical health, and we talk about those in the book, that are exactly that situation where people have symptoms because they have inherited the need of more cofactors yeah. for certain parts of the brain. And uh, you can treat them and get rid of their symptoms by giving them extra micronutrients. Well, we don't have any proof yet that mental disorders are in the same category, but they sure track the same way. It certainly looks the same way because we see people who take extra micronutrients in pill form and they seem to need them. And by the way, they seem to need them forever. Forever. And that's, yeah. It's, and and I agree. Well, and I, I see that um, technically anecdotally through my clients, right? So, yeah. you know, and it's why I'm doing my PhD is so that we can actually do these studies to show that, you know, when you're eating a pretty healthy diet, like that 90-10, but then you add those extra missing nutrients that your body maybe is not metabolizing or able to um, factor in that we see depression completely melt away. We see um, anxiety, panic attack disorders literally stop from the moment they get those additional nutrients. For some people, it's magnesium. For some other people, it's niacin or B3. Uh, for other people, it's a B12. For other people, it's D3. What I tend to find, or for most people, it is the, you know, all of those nutrients benefit us. But we have seen it um, already in the, in the field of um, schizophrenia and Dr. Abraham Hoffer, a famous Canadian um, medical doctor who did tons of research working with individuals with schizophrenia, children with ADD, ADHD, and found that by supplementing with high dose niacin and high dose vitamin C, essentially the symptoms of schizophrenia would disappear. And I love Dr. Hoffer's work because his um, he would say people were successfully treated um, who had schizophrenia and who no longer had schizophrenia, but it was actually that they were able to return to work, get married, right. have a relationship and hold down a job five days a week, just like any other individual in society. And for him, that was success when they right. were able to return back to life and function, but they would need the niacin and the high dose B12 or vitamin C together for the rest of their lives. Right. Exactly like you said, um, but it's beautiful. It is a beautiful thing to see when you figure out what those missing nutrients are that to see someone who doesn't have to live with those symptoms anymore. Right. So um, it's interesting that you cite him because um, I didn't get to know Abram till the end of his life, oh. toward the end of his life. And what a lovely person and a giant. I knew his work, but I hadn't met him personally. He was very excited about our work using broad spectrum, roughly 30 micronutrients at a time. And I, I have known some of his clients who've done very well, but they, they do use massive amounts of 
niacin. And I've often wondered if, if we gave them a broad spectrum formula, mm -hmm. um, whether you could bring the single nutrientos down because, um, and we talk about the magic bullet idea in the book. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the metabolic pathways, it's hard to see why any one nutrient would be important. It's all of them and it's the balance of them. Yeah. So um, anyway, I wish I wish you were around so we could do that study. But I mean, I'm not going to put anybody on a high dose niacin to, yeah. to do a comparison. No, nope, maybe but, you should do that study. Well, I would be happy to do it because we'd use um, the high dose. You know, we I love, you know, Dr. Andrew Saul's work. He often as well uses high mm -hmm. dose nutrients to get, you know, pretty remarkable results. But we see it because I always come in first with my clients with food. We have to get the diet down first and right. then the additional supplements come in and sometimes they only come in for a short period of time not a long indefinite period and some things will stay often we narrow it down to two or three that are kind of like the foods that are going to be the supplements that are going to be on your shelf always and um, b12 being one of them for meat mm -hmm. eaters and non-meat eaters for example and, and vitamin d also and and i want to ask you your opinion on that in a second mm -hmm. but um I do appreciate that you brought that up though, because I too wish the Dr. Abraham Hoffer were still alive today because I would definitely be having him on our podcast <laughs> as well. He is a giant and we all stand on the shoulders of the giants before, you know, before us. And, you know, you are a giant as well. And many individuals are being mm -hmm. affected by your work, myself included, standing on the shoulder, on your shoulders as well. I do see you as a giant out there in this, in this beautiful world of understanding nutrition and brain health. But I, the point that you brought up is exactly that. Um, I'm always hesitant to talk about supplements when you can't dive into it in detail, because, you know, someone will listen to this podcast and run out and buy niacin. And that's not what we're asking you to do. We're asking you first to lead with diet, and then work with somebody who can help you better understand what is that missing nutrient that you would need, because it might not be niacin in your case. So don't just rush out there and stock up your cupboards, you know, like everybody does. They have, you know, what, 50 different supplements that they don't even take. And, and we need to move away from that model. Yeah, this might be where you and I differ a little bit, which I'm hesitant to do because you have me on a pedestal, Nicolette. No, so let's do I don't do want it. to say anything wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. I can put people on a pedestal and still critique and question. Okay. And yeah, we can have this. So please go there. I'd love it. So I, I would argue that um, until we have the right tests, and I'll tell you what I mean by that, that there is no way to pick and choose nutrients. Because when you pick and choose them and you see someone, let's say you have someone who gets very much better on combination of what, say magnesium and I don't know, vitamin D, okay? Does that mean that they are not needing all the others? Or is it just that the, the relationship between their intake and the expression of symptoms is less apparent? It, are they in fact losing some cellular function and it won't even show up till dementia? I think we need all of them all of the time. So, and now let me tell you what I mean about the right tests. I know that the tests have gotten more and more um, sophisticated, and there are a lot of people who do who send off blood tests and everything for their patients, and and do a lot of really good work. I have a lot of respect for people who figure out the metabolomics of what's missing, and da 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 da. 
But the fact is that none of these tests get at the question that I wonder about, and that is, and I think we should all wonder about, which is how much does my brain need to be really functionally functioning optimally and stay that way till I'm 150, okay? Right, yeah. We have no way to test what a brain needs, not what is visible in peripheral blood samples relative to population norms. That's not really that interesting because especially if you know where the population norms came from, um, we need to know what, what we need. Yeah, so that is, I love that. And it's interesting. And I actually do agree with what you're saying there. So I have a bunch of questions around that. One being, um, so we need all of the nutrients all of the time. 100% agree with that. So what does that look like then? You were talking about a broad spectrum nutrient. What would that intake look like for somebody? Yeah, well, um, I want to answer that in two ways. So first, uh, let me just jot this down because whenever I say that, I'll I forget what the second one yeah, no, is going to be. Right? That's great. So first, about the chapter, and then just um, you know what would it look like um, generally? Okay, uh, we have a, an entire chapter in the book that um, lists all of the broad spectrum micronutrient formulas that have been studied by independent scientists. And I want your, your uh, listeners to know that Julie and I have never taken a dime from any manufacturer and never will. And they don't fund our research. They don't, and nothing like that, okay? Very different. And part of that comes from the fact that I grew up in the age where I watched the mental health literature become corrupted mm -hmm. by the pharmaceutical companies. Because when I was in training, nobody would have taken money from a company to do a yeah. study, it was not acceptable. And now who funds all the drug trials, right? So local company. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, I somebody said the other day they do six trials for every new drug so that they can find two that will meet FDA criteria and get approval. They can have four that are negative. Oh, it's just it's a it's crazy. the system is broken, Nicolette. There are still drugs that help people. There are still people who need drugs, but the system is not working for the general population. Okay, so in that chapter, we go over all the multinutrient formulas by broad spectrum. Um, the ones that we studied, uh, uh, well, and Julia is still studying, she's not retired, um, were developed in Alberta and they have roughly 30 minerals and vitamins plus amino acids and anti-inflammatories and stuff. There are some European studies that are very, very good that have maybe about 25. Um, and that's still really broad spectrum. The only problem with those European ones by and large is they are not made by a manufacturer. They're like one group of scientists kludging a group together. They do the study. And then even if they have good results, the next study kludges together another group. So there's no, you can't replicate. No consistent, yeah, consistency. Yeah. So what Julie and I and the other people who have studied the Alberta formulas have done is build a body of literature of about 40 peer-reviewed scientific publications um, going from single subject and open label to within subject reversal up to randomized trials with active comparators to randomized placebo control trials. So the whole gamut of scientific evidence on the broad spectrum formulas, but they, our results are not specific to those formulas. They're, they're 
they're telling us that our brain needs a broad spectrum. And we all wish there were more companies that were producing formulas that could be studied by independent scientists and that were broad spectrum. So nice. in that chapter though, we don't talk about any formulas that don't have scientific research behind them from independent scientists who are independent of the companies. Thanks. I guess I'm an academic snob that way. Well, we need people to be academic snobs because of the fact, uh, what, relating back to what you said, is if you have these studies that are being produced, you have to read the entire study, right? Because mm -hmm. you have to know, first of all, if somebody's doing, a new, especially in the world of nutrition, what are the foods that they're eating on this study? Are they consistent among, because uh, I've seen studies where the person can eat whatever they want within the plant-based world, but then you get into it and you're like, wait a minute, that person predominantly ate just this and this person ate that. Like there was no, the variable, there was too many variables. And so, and that's not really a well-designed study. And then of course, you know, I've seen studies where the person, you know, in nutritional studies where the subjects were still taking their medications while taking the supplements. And I'm like, well, how did those medications interact? Because we know certain medications prevent magnesium absorption. We know certain medications. So, so we do need academic snobs 100%. And I give you a high five to being an academic okay. snob because it's so important um, that we have somebody who can truly help us understand, you know, like let's even just look at the resveratrol studies. Right. Mm. How many bottles of wine would you have to drink to be able to get that oh, amount yeah. of resveratrol? So people then are out there just consuming red wine, but not understanding that actually there's a better way to get resveratrol consistently every single day through a plethora of foods. It's not necessary. And what are the effects of drinking that much wine on your body just to mm. try and get that resveratrol? So yeah, I'm all for academic snobbery, especially when, you know, and not saying, well, there wasn't a study done, so therefore it doesn't prove that because that's a different level of academic snobbery that says, well, just because the study wasn't designed does not mean it's not true, right? right. And so we, you know, people need to understand that as well. And, and we do need more studies done, but we also need to look at the anecdotal evidence as well. I often mm -hmm. say that if there's enough anecdotal, anecdotal you know, data showing that, oh yeah, by having broad, broad spectrum nutrients, you know, eating a whole food diet that doesn't contain, you know, pesticides, herbicides, and all of that, and the person resolves their condition, mm -hmm. shouldn't we be looking at what those people are eating and then doing those, you know, you know, looking at the population studies, which we have the population studies already to prove. So as I say, we need more studies. I'm also saying, actually, we just need to look at all those existing studies that have been done over the last 150 years. There's a lot of good information mm -hmm. already that's been done. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to say something more about the broad spectrum too that, that pertains to this Our, and relevant to what you just said, Nicolette. We do have a lot of stories and anecdotes in the book to illustrate our, illustrate our points and also, frankly, to keep it really interesting for yeah. the general public. But even though we studied and are studying broad spectrum formulas, even that's not enough. And that's important to keep in mind. Um, omega-3 fatty acids are absolutely essential for our brains and our hearts. And a lot of people don't eat fish. And so 
if you're not eating fish, you need to be getting your omega-3 some other way. Um, there is not enough D, vitamin D, in these formulas. Most people living, depending on where you're living and whether you're getting outside, etc., will probably take more D. So you have to learn a little bit about nutrients. Yeah. And then just to really, I don't know, show you how overwhelming it can get, there is this category called phytonutrients. Phytonutrients just means plant nutrients, like resveratrol that you just mentioned, yeah. like lycopene. I have read estimates that there are 1,200. I've re read estimates that there are over 2,000. I don't think anybody really knows. Mostly they aren't named. Mostly they are not studied yet. We don't know what they do in the human brain or body. But Mother Nature has packaged them with the vitamins and minerals and, and omega-3 fatty acids. So probably we have evolved to need them. And it's another reason to get back to improving the soil and growing healthy food because we need more nutrient-dense, healthy food to give us all the stuff that we don't even have names for. Exactly. So that would be best. Yeah, so ultimately what you're saying is looking at our diet, eating more of those beautiful plants grown in a healthy soil, eating them in abundance consistently every day. It's not just I ate healthy one day of the week, you know, and maybe that's a place to start, but maybe. ultimately you need to definitely, your brain needs that fuel every single day, needs those micronutrients every day. So you need to give it to your body every single meal, every single snack. Um, so important to do that. I do have a question for you around, um, and I'm sure that everybody asks you this, but fish oils, can we please talk about fish oils and what you've discovered in your research? I haven't studied fish oils for the simple reason that I started studying the two Alberta formulas that are talked about in the book. And they oils are hard to package with, with the powder of vitamins and minerals. So I have not actually studied them. But what is your question? It has, is it to do with the con possible contamination or about? It's actually to do with the benefits of taking fish oils versus oh. potential. Um... Well, yeah. So, you know, we are a magic bullet society. I have an infection, give me an antibiotic. I have, I don't know, whatever, depression, give me a, a vitamin D and make it go away. Well, vitamin D doesn't make it go away. But, you, but scientists get funded to study single nutrient treatments. They won't, so far, the federal agencies will not fund broad spectrum nutrient treatment. That's why I set up the two charitable funds that I think you and I talked about last time to fund the research of my, my junior colleagues. So, so that's magic bullet thinking or silver bullet thinking. There is no such thing for the brain. It's too complex. And mm -hmm. the same is true of omega-3s. Just because you're getting enough omega-3s or eating fish a couple times a week, don't, don't assume you're never going to have depression. It's not, it's, it's one nutrient. It's not enough. Your brain needs the whole spectrum of everything you can give it in balance. Thank you. Is that what you're that's, looking for? That's exactly <laughs> what I was looking for. And okay. yeah, and it is true. Like if the, I would say if there's one thing for ever, all our listeners to take away from what Bonnie has talked about today, you've mentioned so many 
brilliant things um, that we need to pay attention to. And you have to read the book. Everyone who's listening to the podcast, just read this book. I don't often say read one book, but if there is one book to read about the brain, hands down, it's um, Bonnie Kaplan's book for sure. But it's that magic bullet. There is no magic bullet. There's no magic bullet you know, definitely if you have an infection, a bacterial infection that is starting to spread through your body and your body is not able to naturally fight it on its own, hands down an antibiotic. I would call that a magic bullet in that particular case. If you have a broken femur in a car accident, hands down your orthopedic surgeon who is going to, you know, put your bone in alignment so that your body's going to heal it. The you know, orthopedic surgeon is not sewing and knitting back that bone, your body needs the nutrients to be able to knit that bone back together. But the magic bullet is being able to go into surgery and have somebody put the plate and the pins in place. So yes, I do believe in magic bullets that way. But when it comes to our everyday overall health for preventing chronic disease, managing it and reversing it, there is no magic bullet. And ultimately, the magic is in the soil, it's in the food that's grown in the healthy soil and it's in eating it every single day. And yes, that's going to take work. It's going to take time, but there is no magic bullet. So stop looking, you know, still question, definitely get curious about these different nutrients and understand what it means, but move away from thinking, I'm just going to eat carrots. Carrots are the magic bullet because they're (laughs) high in beta carotene. There's not a single food on the planet that is not abundant in actually almost all of the nutrients. Some might have higher levels of beta carotene, higher levels of magnesium, but they all contain all the nutrients. So stop looking for the magic bullet and just think about diversity and getting as many nutrients as you can through an abundance of, of, you know, and it might be supplements, but also um, the foods themselves. Is this a good place to point out that it's not all about food too? Because we are probably talking to people with mental health challenges. Yes, And uh, I was looking at the reviews on Amazon uh, a few days ago of our book, and uh, they're wonderful, except there are two really strange ones. And one of them said, well, you didn't talk about all the other causes about mental illness, so I'm giving you a low score, okay? Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, we talked about nutrition because it's our field and we're both scientists yeah. in that area and, and also because it's usually really overlooked in our society. But of course, also exercise. Look at yes. me telling you, Nicolette, right? Also family support, social activities, everything else, meditation, breathing, do all of the things that can make you feel better. So they're all important. It's just that we've been focusing on nutrition today. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm glad that you said that. And that's why we have different experts in the field as well. I mean, you know, we were just talking about how your husband has been practicing yoga and meditation for 50 Mm -hmm. years now. And, you know, and I just find that is so remarkable because it's the consistency of doing these things for a long period of time that we really see. I mean, for sure, you can have a remarkable experience by meditating once a month, and that can carry you through. And, um, you know, you could choose to use it as a crutch, or you could choose to use it as a consistent tool every day that you're going to go deeper and deeper into it. So I would encourage everybody, yes, consider everything that, um, you know, uh, Dr. Bonnie Kaplan just said, which is 100%. Mm -hmm. Consider your sleep, consider exercise. Those are 
vital to our overall health. Consider meditation, yoga, movement of any type. It doesn't have to just be running or biking like I'm doing, but it can consist of dance. It can, can mm-hmm. ecstatic dance or ballet or, you know, any, any kind of movement that you really resonate with that will encourage you to do it consistently. Um, but you are an expert in the field of nutrition. Um, so that's why I did bring you in there. And yes, it's not all about food, but at the same time, we eat three meals a day and all of our snacks. So in a way, it kind of is all about food too. It's the foundation. It is. And eating, and as you know, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, is that the better you eat, often the better you sleep. Mm-hmm. Oh, we. I remember, can I tell you a funny yes, story? I don't know if 100%. we're running out of time or not. <laughs> you know what? We'll probably close this up shortly, but we're going to have okay. you back on the show so we can dive deeper into some of these subjects for sure. Okay. Yeah, so but tell this story. story. So way back uh, over 20 years ago, when I was doing my very first research in using one of these broad broad spectrum formulas, and by the way, just so your listeners understand, I tend not to use the names on the air in places like this, because then people assume I work for the companies, and I've never worked for the companies, but you can read the book and you'll find out what the formulas are. At any rate, I had a group of psychiatrists who were helping me you know, set up another study. And they said, well, we should take this ourselves first, because there's not much data on it. Let's see how we feel. And so we made up a little adverse event checklist for them. And we all went off and we took it for two weeks and brought it back. And I couldn't believe it. The two most common side effects were improved sleep and relief of constipation, which I said, (laughs) too much information. But anyway, That has held true, even to the present time, the side effects of taking these formulas are improved sleep, uh, relief of constipation, more energy, Mm -hmm. removal, brain fog, being able to think more clearly, we get that all the time. Yeah. No, and that's exactly what we find with our clients as well. They learn how to eat well, take a few extra supplements, and then all of a sudden, like everything that you just described. And I think the pooping topic is definitely important. It's probably the number one thing that my clients get excited about. They're like, oh my gosh, I normally don't poop for four or five days, and now I'm pooing every single day. And I'm like, yes. Exactly. That's what you should do. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I have clients that send me pictures of their stool to be like, look at how healthy this looks. It's never oh. it's normally been diarrhea or constipation. And now it's like, oh. you know, they get so excited. And you know, and we know who you, most of us, hopefully are pooping every day. And when we don't have a bowel movement, we know how uncomfortable that feels. Oh, yeah. And so of course, let's talk about poo. I'm yeah. all about it for sure. Um, Dr. Bodden Kaplan, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. What I want to ask you as one of our last questions is, as a society, and you know, you can consider society as by any definition, our immediate society or broader society, um, what is it that we ultimately need to start doing to start changing the systems? Because this is a systemic issue, how we've arrived at where we are eating the foods that we've been eating. And I know that's a very broad question, but you know, if you can make wave your magic wand, what is the number one thing we need to do first? Yeah, I always think it's a matter of education. I don't care if you're talking about diversity of, uh, you know, in, on social political issues and 
hate and racism and anti-Semitism and all of that, or if you're talking about the closed-mindedness of, of the general public, the media, and physicians toward the importance of nutrition, it's all a matter of education. Edu when you educate people about it, then they're more open. Mm -hmm. Now, we have been told that our book has the possibility of becoming a bestseller. Uh, we hope it's true because they say that's how we will influence the politicians mm -hmm. and the policymakers. And if it doesn't sell that well, we are less likely to do that. And so that's, you know, I always say I didn't write this book for fame or fortune. I'm not interested in either one. I just want to change the way people are treated mm -hmm. with mental health problems. And that means really getting the ear of people. And that means educating them. And so that's why this book is written for the general public. So people at every level can read it. I love that. So I have one wish for you. And I know you're retired, but maybe we'll pull you out of retirement. <laughs> you're not really retired. You're busy writing books and, right. you know, and educating people. And I love it. But what I found is I love when, um, individuals like yourself, practitioners like yourself, researchers, where they have a proven formula that works, they see the results that, you know, people get from it. And then when they develop a train, the trainer system, mm. because like you said, education is so profound. People read so many books, but we know that so many people only read the first few chapters. But when people are interacting in their social, and we need community to be healthy as well. So what I tend to find is when somebody can learn your system and then take it and go teach others, whether, you know, they might choose to focus on teaching elementary school students or high school students or seniors or physicians or other nutritionists who might not be, you know, might not understand how to use food as medicine the way that you do. And so anyway, just a, just a wish that I have out there, because I know I would sign up for your program to be able to. Um, we're doing very similar things, but I always love learning and I love teaching as well. And I love teaching face-to-face -face in this crazy COVID world that we can't be doing that now, but we will get back to it. So just a thought out there. That's my wish for the world okay. is that they can learn how to teach what you do. Thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. So thank you so much for being on the show. I know that our listeners are going to want to have you back on. So we will have to arrange that so we can dive deeper into some of these topics, dive deeper into the science as well. Um, and for everybody that's listening out there, um, you are going to be able to find Dr. Bonnie Kaplan and the Better Brain book in the show notes below. But how can people reach you and contact you? Well, through my website is the best. And my website is bonniejkaplan.com. You have to have my middle initial because there are too many people named Bonnie Kaplan. Okay. Okay? <laughs> but bonniejkaplan.com. Amazing. So we'll make sure to drive everybody to your website so that they can get access to all of the beautiful resources that you have. Thank you so much for being on our show. Okay, thank you. Welcome back to the show. How did you like that podcast. Isn't Dr. Bonnie Kaplan the best? Now, please look at the show notes below because there's lots of links in there so you can connect with Dr. Kaplan and her team, get access to her book, and start turning your life around today. And go ahead and press like and share and forward this through all your social media channels to all of the friends that you have out there that are currently battling 
any of the conditions that we talked about today, because mental health is a very, 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 very important, 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 I cannot stress it enough, topic that we all need to be bringing to the surface. We had just lost a, a child in our community um, to mental health conditions, um, took his own life. We lost another, mentor, another member of our community. My ex-husband took his life. We know each and every one of us knows somebody who is battling a mental health condition. And I cannot stress this enough. Your body needs nutrients so that your brain can heal. And the beautiful thing about it is you can implement the changes today and start seeing results immediately. A lot of my clients that suffer from panic attack disorders and anxiety, they do not have another anxiety or panic attack when they make these changes because the body becomes neutrified with all the magnesium and the potassium and the 125 plus nutrients that their body needs to start repairing the gut brain axis, the microbiome, um, the tight gap junctions that need to close up so that you absorb nutrients and heal the body. And then when you do this, the brain thrives, the brain fog lifts, and you are resilient. You are able to withstand stress. You are able to face life and come up with solutions to all the obstacles that we're going to face multiple times a day. And you actually have a desire to live. So we need to all be working together as a community. So I cannot stress this enough. Please share the work that Dr. Kaplan is doing, share the work that we are doing, because you could save a life today simply by pressing forward and send um, with this podcast and all this information. Thanks everywhere for being, thanks everyone for being incredible listeners. We're in about 187 countries around the world, which is very exciting. And if you know somebody that has a healing hero story or an incredible researcher, scientist, physician, healthcare worker, any individual with expertise in the world of reversing chronic diseases, please forward me their name because we'd love to have them on the show so that they can share their stories of how they are helping other people unlock their potential by reversing the chronic disease. Hey everyone, bye-bye. See you at the next podcast next week. Have a great one.